I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do, can do. This is Bill Duncliffe, and this is Can Do, a podcast devoted to horse racing. Some history, some handicapping, and some humor. Our guest today is Scott Carson. Scott is one of the founders of Public Handicapper, a free handicapping contest site that runs a year-long series of fun and challenging handicapping contests. Scott is also a veteran of many handicapping contests, live money, mythical bankrolls, national handicapping championship, maybe too many contests to mention even. But we'll talk to him today about all of those. Welcome, Scott, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bill. Uh, glad to be here. So, Scott, let's go back in the Wayback Machine. What was the, when was the first time you went to the races? How did you get hooked on racing? Who was your first winner? Tell us about all that. Uh, sure. Uh, I, I will never forget. Uh, I was brought to the races. I was brought to Belmont in 1985. <clears throat> I, I think it was 85. And um, I bet on a horse named Equalize. That was my first bet. And I think he was running in... It was a turf race, and I think it was a stakes race, but I'm not absolutely positive. And uh, he was 4-1, to one, and I bet $2 to win on him, and I won. And I uh, was feeling pretty good about that. <laughs> so, uh, so I, you know, um, I immediately had an interest because I thought, hey, you know, you can, if you do a little analysis here, you can make money. And, um, and, uh, you know, the, the guy who brought me, I was friends with, and when, uh, I broke up with my girlfriend at the time, I, anything else to do. So we went to start going to the track every weekend and, um, that's how I got hooked. Oh, that's great. So Equalize was the name of your first winner. Your first bet, your first winner. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he actually is a noted sire from, uh, South America. Uh, uh you know, I don't know got to be gone by now but um you will still see in a lot of south american horses you'll see equalize in their bloodlines oh that must give you a good feeling every time you see that i'll bet yeah it's always nice to see equalize there so scott public handicapper how did you get the idea for that when did you start it tell us a, a little bit about the history and how it's grown well <clears throat> um public handicapper is before we did public handicapper uh, my friend and I had a tout sheet uh, called OTB Mania, uh, which we faxed to three or four people in the United States. <laughs> and uh, uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. We would have guest handicappers on occasion. And um, even if they weren't uh, serious players, they enjoyed handicapping and writing and analysis. So once the Internet came out, we said, hey, well, what's build a website where people can write their own analysis and, um, and, and have their own records. So we uh, found a guy who was willing to work for commission only, and uh, that was the programmer. And we worked with him over the course of uh, about a year or two to get Public Handicapper running, and it debuted in 1999. And uh, <clears throat> I think we had, you know, a couple hundred players initially, and um, it's grown to, um, I mean, now there's like 12,000 active users, even though um, they're not necessarily really active. Um, we do have about 2,000 players every week, though. Wow, that's fantastic. That's, so, uh, Scott, uh, tell 
people a little bit about the public handicap format, uh, you know, what the contest, how the contest is structured, why they should go, why they should go to it, why they should play there. Well, uh, the main reason to go is it's free. So that's, um, you know, and it, it, it has actually legitimate prizes. So over the years, for many, many years, we uh, provided two seats to the National Horse Players Championship. And our current prize is a seat and travel fare to, uh, to the Horse Player World Series in Vegas. So it gives you an opportunity to play in a contest for real prizes for free. And at the same time, gives you a chance to look and read what other players are thinking so that you can get a handle on. You can really learn the game by playing public handicapper, and you can learn contest strategy. Uh, so, <clears throat> I mean, that's the reason for people to go there. Um, I personally just really enjoy it, uh, even though I'm ineligible for the main prize. Uh, I... I love playing it every week because it, it gives me an opportunity to play four races a week. And often those are the only four races that I get to play on the weekend and also see what other people are thinking. Like if we're, you're completely, uh, completely stymied as to how to pick a winner, you just don't even know where to go. You can read around and get some other handicapping perspectives <clears throat> that you may not have on your own. So it's a, it's a way to learn handicapping and learn contest play. I, I agree with you. That is one of the benefits. I do like to read the analyses that people post. <clears throat> do you wish that more people posted analyses uh, on there? Because a lot of people I notice just you know make picks and go. Do you wish that more people use the analysis box to discuss their thinking? Uh, I do actually, but uh, you know, I mean, I always imagine that many more people would be posting analysis because I thought that's what one of the selling points of playing the contest was. But apparently people aren't interested in doing that. And <clears throat> yeah, it's, I guess it's fine because if you were to force them to post an analysis, then maybe it wouldn't be very good. Right. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I do, I do. I will say that one time I read your analysis and it was for free drop Billy and you had noted that in his first race, he had like an enormous amount of trouble and still won very easily. And, and I was like, Oh, okay. I got to watch that race now. So it, it does it to me. It, it helps me. It, it helps point out things. There are enough analysis there that usually you can get a few things that you weren't thinking about beforehand. Um, and in that way, in that way, it's helpful to my handicapping. Yeah, I wish Billy had lived up to that first race promise. He never did, uh, much to the regret of my bankroll. But uh, that's that's a story for another day. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, you posted one time, uh, never forget this, and maybe this brings up a bad memory, I hope not, but you posted one time about a horse named Spaghetti Mouse. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Spaghetti Mouse, uh, I was. it was a race at Hastings. So it was the British Columbia Derby, and... It was many years ago. It had to be 20 years ago. And the horse was 10 to 1 morning line. And I was going to play him. I liked, I liked his you know, angle on the sheets. And I was going to play him. And then I somehow found a way to latch on to a different horse that was 5 to 1. 
And so I switched my pick, you know, before I, before I posted on public handicapper and it turned out that the horse went off at uh, 42 to one and it might've been 41 to one, but it was 40 something to one. And when I was watching the race, I was watching, you know, the coverage up to the race. I said, Oh my God, I've got to put some money on that horse. I hope he doesn't win because I got off of him. So I did put 10 bucks on him and I won over 400 bucks. But it was much more important to me for me to have that horse on public handicapper because he would have been a 30-to-1 capper. Sure. Um, and so now I, I always remind, I try to remind myself to remember Spaghetti Mouse. Always go with the horse that's going to be the huge price as opposed to the horse that you think maybe logically has a little bit better chance to win. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have a sign o- over my desk that says, remember Spaghetti Mouse, <laughs> so that I will not forget that. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, we, uh, we've all had those experiences, right, where you get off a horse for whatever reason, and, and uh, you know, then you look up and the price is, you know, much more than you ever thought, and then you're you're kicking yourself afterwards. At least you had some cash on them. That, that was good. That was good. Yeah, Scott, you mentioned yeah, small uh, consolation. <laughs> you mentioned the sheets, and I know that is a handicapping method that a lot of folks use. I you showed them to me one time, and they just kind of looked like DNA test results to me. Um, tell me about the the art of reading the sheets and 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 how you use them and how they're kind of built in the first place, if you don't mind. <clears throat> well, uh, you know, there is an art to reading them, so. Yeah, uh, nothing that I could describe here, but I would advise anybody who's interested in uh, finding out about the art of reading the sheets to get a book called The Odds Must Be Crazy by Len Ragazin, R-A-G-O-Z-I-N. He's the guy who created the sheets. And um, it, in that book, it, it gives uh, examples of uh, good sheet patterns and why you should play them and how to read the sheets. And you, you can't just get the sheets and sort of pick it up. You need, you need to learn the art of reading them. You, you, you know, I, I got the sheet, I started getting the sheets in like year 2000 or so. And it took me a long time before I really learned how to read them because I just started reading them as opposed to getting a a strict education in how to read them. And, you know, everybody reads them differently, but it's, you need a good foundation in how to read them in order to be able to take advantage of them. So, uh, how, how you, you mentioned the learning curve, how long was the learning curve in learning how to, to, to read them and interpret them? I think I started getting, actually, I did start getting them now that I'm thinking about it. I think I started getting them in like 1997 because that was the year Silver Charm won the uh, Kentucky Derby and I liked him and they, and the, the sheets guys were convinced me to switch my bet to captain Bodget. And uh, fortunately I didn't back it up. So I, I think I used them on and off for a few years, but not until I actually got that book and then really studied it hard. I start to win with the sheets. So, uh, you know, for me, it took until about the year 2001 to really learn them. <clears throat> but I also didn't really apply myself properly. So I think somebody can start 
using them, if they read the book and they uh, follow the lessons there, I think you should be able to get going within within a couple months. Okay. Uh, certainly, you know, I've had girlfriends who I've taught how to read the sheets, uh, give them a few angles, and they 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 start winning with them. You know, like within a few weeks. So it can be done. It just it took me a long time because I didn't really know, I didn't realize that I had to study the art of the of reading them in in the book. So Scott, you're a, you're a contest player. Obviously, you play in a lot of different types of contests. You know, live money, pick and pray, mythical money. What what are the different strategies that you employ in in different contests, or or do you employ different strategies in different contests? Or do you go in with this, or do you go in with the same strategic approach to these? Um, yeah, that's a that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, you know, I'd say that the first the first rule for me is that I prefer contests where I get to choose the races. So I don't like, I don't like all mandatory um, race contests. And so many of the online contests will say, Hey, these are the 10 races. You have to pick, make picks in these 10 races. And I, I usually don't like that because they've been picked for me. I, I haven't looked at a whole card and said, I, I want to zero in on these two races. So, in that way, I don't really, uh, those are my least favorite types of contests. Now, uh, when it gets toward the end of the year and you haven't qualified for the NHC, sometimes you need to play those contests because it's the only way you can, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's like your last chance. And, and one year, you know, uh, last year, in fact, that's how I qualified uh, was by doing a pick and pray. So if I'm forced to play a contest like that, that's okay. But before I enter the contest, I will study the races to make sure that I actually have opinions. So the pick and pray that I uh, got second in and qualified for the NFC, that race, you know, that contest, I looked at the races and said, hey, you know, there's a couple horses I like in here. So yeah, okay, I'm going to play the contest. But if I didn't like any horses or if I just didn't have any feel for the races, then I'd be better off not entering the contest. So, so that's like the mandatory, uh, that, you know, that's, that's all I have to say as far as all mandatory contests. Um, now the NAC is mythical, but it's not all mandatory. It's, there's, uh, eight mandatory races and 10, um, uh, optional choices, and usually I'm going to score with my optional plays because because then I can use the angles that I prefer. If it's a maiden race that hasn't been picked, you know, and it's got a, 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 a first time starter that has um, you know something that I like, then I'm going to be able to score on that race. Whereas if it's a uh, you know uh, an all mandatory online contest. I could see I could have a race that I love, but it's not part of the contest. So, so that's why I still see because even though it's mythical, we, you know you have you have optional plays, and the Horsefly World Series is all optional plays, which is even better in my opinion. Um, so, so I do like mythical contests as long as I have a choice of which races to play. And then my favorite type of contest is a uh, uh, real money live bankroll contest where you get to choose your races. Now, sometimes you don't have 
that much of a choice. Like, uh, if they say, if it's a contest that at Saratoga and there's only nine or ten races, you you don't have many choices there, and uh, that's why I would prefer a contest. I you know I, the year I won the Saratoga contest, we had two racetracks that day. We had a, a Gulfstream and Saratoga, and that just gave me twice as many choices on races in which to bet. And even though I scored big in in one of the Saratoga races. I uh, I really appreciated and actually did win a race that was at Gulfstream. So so the more choices that that you have as a handicapper, because you've got to pick your places. You know, you, can't, you have to pick your spots. A good handicapper is not going to bet every single race. Mm-hmm. Only bet the races where they have an edge. So uh, so so anyway, that's the the reason why I, I prefer those contests, the live bankroll contests. Um, well, there's two reasons. One is because I get to choose, but the other is that even if you like a five to two, you can still make money on it. And if it's a, um, a mythical contest, if you pick a horse that's five to two, it's not really going to help you. I mean, it might help if there's only ten races and you all and you do well in other races, but um, in it's you know generally not going to help you like it's the, if it's the last race of the day, the five to two isn't, and you're far back. The five to two is not going to help you, even if you love the horse. But if it's a real money contest, a lot of bankroll, then uh, then you can bet all your money on it, and you can turn. Let's say you have two hundred bucks, you could turn that into seven hundred bucks. That's a that's a great point about the five to two shot and the the pick and pray or the mythical monies versus the live the live bankroll contest and how you can weight your play on a five to two shot in the in the real money contest uh, you know or even back them up with a long shot if you want to do something like that um, yeah because there there's going to be a point with a you know. Uh, uh, like you said, a five to two shot at the end of the tournament, he's not going to help you at all if you're if you're behind. That's a, that's a great point. So Scott, uh, you talked a little bit about this. Uh, it, it, contest play has really informed, and, and I've found this to be the case for myself as well. Contest play has really informed your handicapping and your strategic decisions as well, hasn't it? It it has, and I and I and I see it affect other people as well. So uh, I, I can give a couple of examples. Um, one example: when you're you're in contest play, and a bunch of people hit a long shot, you're like, "Why do they like that horse?" And it it helps you. There, one example was a, a it was a, a, a contest at Aqueduct and. It was years ago, and there was a race at Churchill that was on the turf and had about 12 horses. So it was one of these insane contest races where everybody like everybody is on a different long shot. And there were uh, – the, the race was won by like an 18 to 1, and that place just erupted. I mean, there were dozens of people had that horse, and these were good – players. I mean, and some of them were already on the, you know, high up on the leaderboard and they just, you know, crushed it. And so it gives you a chance that you're like, what, what do they see in that horse if you didn't have it? And so you look closer at the horse 
and you start to learn like, oh yeah, like I should have paid attention to that. And whether you're working uh, from the sheets or working from DRF, uh, whatever your methodology, you start to see reasons why you should have that horse or should have at least considered that horse. So I think that's one one important thing uh, that that I've learned from contest play is just you know learning, finding out, uh, discovering why other people liked a horse, and then being able to apply that to your future handicapping. The uh, the other thing is, one time I was playing a contest with a guy that I just met. He was sitting at the table. And he kept on playing like five to two shots in a mythical contest. <laughs> and, you know, you, you learn and he learns over time that even though he picked like six winners out of ten races, he didn't do well because especially in, you know, in a mythical contest, you need higher than five to two. Now, that, that was mythical, but it was optional. So, in other words, you could uh, – Choose your choose your races. So he would choose a five to two horse, you know, in in a race just because he thought that horse would win. And the reason why that's a bad strategy, in uh, especially with a mythical contest, is that not only does the uh, you know, is it not going to get you up on the leaderboard, but the other thing is that in real life you have to keep hitting those horses in order to show a profit. And you just aren't going to be able to do that. Five to two that you know should you think should be a six to five and you absolutely crush it in a live bankroll contest, that's a different story. But um, in general, it sort of teaches you that you're not really looking for the five to twos. Mm. You're looking for the six to one, and higher and horses that are overlays so that you, know, you can actually make real money. It's just not, it's, it, you know, unless you crush it, put like 2000 on it, you're not going to make that much. But if you find a, a nice bomb and you put a modest amount, you can crush it. So I, I think that, you know, just, I, I, I would say that the contest play is, altered my regular handicapping uh, strategy and I, I, I recommend that anybody play more contests. Well, you, you mentioned one other point too that I think was really important. I think it's, it may be the most difficult point for any horse player to come to grips with and that is to only bet when you have an edge and that is, that is very difficult to discipline yourself to do. I, I find particularly when you're at the track live. If I'm sitting at home watching races, it's easy to say I'm going to pass this one. But the for whatever reason the pressure when you're at the track is, you know, there's not going to be another race for another 20 minutes, 25 minutes and you feel compelled to bet, but if, you know, I, I think that is the key to success is just waiting, waiting, waiting until you have an edge and then, you know, going with that. Yeah, uh you know, I'm I definitely I have the exact same experience and I lose money, you know, a lot when I go to the track because I want I want some action. Right. And you know that's it's it's easy to pay attention to something else when you're at home and wait that extra hour 
exactly for the next race that, exactly. that that's that's playable so so we we need to we need to sort of we need to discover the way to distract ourselves for an entire race at the racetrack <laughs> the person who invents that is going to be a rich person i can tell you that um <laughs> scott who's your who's your favorite horse of all time uh, my favorite horse of all time. It's really close between two horses. I, I say the I have to say the winner still uh, the winner and still champion is Personal Ensign, who won the Breeders' Cup Distaff in 1988. She was uh, 14 for 14. She beat the boys. Uh, she overcame everything. She and in the Breeders' Cup Distaff. That year, winning colors had won the Kentucky Derby. She took the lead. It was a muddy racetrack. I'm not sure. I think maybe she hadn't run on a muddy racetrack before. Uh, I'm talking about personal ensign. She was way back, and she just ground out a win and, and retired undefeated. So so I'd say that she's my favorite horse, and my second favorite would be Zenyatta. Who also who came, almost did the same thing? Yeah, who also came from way back and almost re- retired undefeated. That's right. That's right. And they were actually both <laughs> both at the same track, right? Where uh, one one completed the rally, the other fell just short. Oh uh, yeah, I guess it was a Churchill dance. I wasn't I wasn't thinking that, you know, because I, 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 I was watching it on TV when I when I saw the race. But yeah, I think it was a Churchill Downs yeah. and where winning colors had won the Kentucky Derby. So uh, yeah, even. Another coincidence. So, Scott, let's compare venues because I know you've you've traveled around the country. Uh, Santa Anita or Belmont? Which is which? Which do you prefer? Santa Anita or Belmont? Um, I kind of like. I, I mean, I love Belmont, absolutely, but I kind of like Santa Anita better. Just, you know, it's just a. It's I. Just, I love being at Santa Anita. It's just a nice vibe there. So yeah, I would I would take Santa Anita, but you know, no quibbles about Belmont. It's a beautiful place. All right, so let's make this a little more difficult, or maybe not so as difficult. Saratoga or Del Mar? <laughs> Saratoga by a mile. I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I like Del I like Del Mar too, but uh, Saratoga is uh, a real special place. So Scott, I know that you uh, last time I talked with you, you mentioned that you are playing the horses full time now. How do you do that? Do you do you concentrate on specific circuits or, or tracks? Uh, do you limit yourself to types of races? How do you, how do you how do you manage that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very good question, and I am still sort of figuring out the way, the way that I wanted, finding my way, uh, just, you know, I'm still kind of feeling my way to see what works best for me. I will say that, um, playing, playing at, yeah, just taking a track and trying to nail the card, you know, just, you know, just focusing on, one track and one card is not the best way to do it. Okay. That's, you know, that's my, my, you know, that's my conclusion so far are really races are the most important. 
So I want like a turf, a nice big turf field. If I get a lot of those, it doesn't matter where they are. So like um, yesterday I hit something at Indiana Grant, which I would never think of playing, but they had two big fields of turf stakes, both $200,000 races. And I just got sheets for just those races handicapped and made a play, made a couple of plays, but one of them hit. And that's, you know, I, I think that's the better way is to pick your spots. Um, but you know, I can't answer the question definitively because I still, despite being a professional handicapper and not making, uh, I have a lot of other things going on. I do some volunteer work. Okay. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, I don't do it every day. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to play the races every single day. So I'm, I'm really lucky to get two days a week. Okay. I, I, now, I, granted, I, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I, I just did the whole Saratoga meet and I did, I played every day and I played every card and that was really difficult because it took so much of my time that uh, everything else in my life was put on hold. So, um, so I think that I'm going to return back to uh, just picking my plays, you know, when I have time, then saying, all right, now what are the races that are out there, the best type of races that are going to um, work for me? That fit your eye, basically. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, the the consistent, the one thing that's really consistent for me, it's it's not it's not you know it's not exclusive, but I find turf racing with large fields is the way to go. For, that's where I make my money. Well, I think it's important that every handicapper know what they're good at and what they're not good at, and that does take. Uh, and I know you are meticulous about keeping records about what you've done, um, and I I. I probably don't do that as much as I should, but I, I have over the years, you know, begun to figure out which types of races I'm really good at and which ones I'm not. And I think that that is really important to to know yourself, basically, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you can't you can't rely exclusively on that. Um, but, you know, even though I prefer turf races, I, I've had plenty of great scores in dirt races. And, um, you know, so, but if you're going to, if you're going to pick and choose, if you're going to sort only look at, for example, so, you know, you only have time to handicap 10 races, you might just look for those types of races and choose them to, to handicap as opposed to just get the Belmont card, right? There may be some good turf racing at Gulfstream. And there could be some golf, you know, some good racing at Woodbine. Um, uh, you know, also for me, I also like synthetic racing. So uh, basically, you know, my, my bread and butter is allowance level and higher turf and synthetic, but, you know, but dirt is good too. So, you know, um, that, that kind of class of horse, that kind of class of horse racing on any surface I'm going to like. So I'm not 100% like, oh, no, I can only play turf races. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah, you, and it's interesting to hear the rare synthetic fan because there are not a lot. I used to be a big Polytrack fan, uh, but of course, Polytrack, other than Arlington, isn't really there anymore. Uh, and Tapita, well, Woodbine, Woodbine is a pretty, uh, pretty major track. Yeah, yeah. Now that's a Tapita surface, correct? At Woodbine. Well, yeah, but synthetic. I mean, yeah, yeah sure. we're talking synthetic. Yeah. I, I don't. I, Trying to differentiate between different types of uh, synthetic uh, is a loser's game, as far as I'm concerned. That's that's uh, that's that's weird science, right there. I think. <laughs> well, listen, Scott, you've been a you've been a great guest. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Uh, as a token of my appreciation, I'm going to reach into my goodie grab bag of gift certificates and award you with. Here we go. A free one year subscription to the Racing Times. How about that? <laughs> All right. Well, that was one of my favorite papers. <laughs> it was a good one. <laughs> okay. And by the way, I, I have to add also, Golden Gate, despite the small fields that they have, sometimes they have pretty decent fields, and they were one of uh, one of the one of my significant scores in the NHC was at Golden Gate on the synthetic. Oh, that's interesting. That's a, uh, you know that's yeah a, that's, yeah that's actually a track I ignored just because I really didn't. You and I talked about that. I mean, I just kind of picked out three tracks, four tracks that I, you know, felt comfortable with um, just because trying to manage all of that uh, activity is just really difficult. So other than the mandatories, I would say Golden Gate is one that I ignored, and it sounds like it's to my discredit that I did that. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, it's uh, any large field on synthetic, and especially if it's a good quality, uh, you know, quality card like quality race like an allowance that's that's what i'm going to zero in on and um you know there's uh, there's arlington there's golden gate there's woodbine uh presque isle downs which is not one i play very often Mm -hmm. but you know there's some synthetic tracks out there and uh turfway and you know you some when horses come you know, come from those tracks it's it's a handicappable handicappable angle hmm. whether they like the synthetic or not oh, interesting interesting well listen scott thanks again for your time we really appreciate it we'll talk with you again soon thank you as we do every week we're now going to move on to our closing segment that we call the big score everyone's got a big score story some killing of, of the monetary variety they made of the track don't hesitate to share yours on our Can Do Facebook page or email us at CanDoBillD, that's C-A-N-D-O-B-I-L-L-D, at gmail.com. Today's Big Score story is brought to you by Matt Packard, who has appeared on the podcast as a guest handicapper previously. I happen to be there for this Big Score when it happened, and every time I think about it, I get a real chuckle out of it. I hope you will, too. Thanks, Bill. So um, I'm going to go back to opening weekend at Saratoga in 2013. Um, opening weekend at Saratoga, as I think most players can attest, can be can be challenging at times. Horses coming in from from all over, trainers coming in, kind of a shake up to the jockey colony. So that, that opening weekend can be can be tough, but there could be money to be made. So uh, that particular weekend, um, I had uh, I think probably cashed one or two races on Friday. Had a relatively bad day. I uh, had a miserable day on Saturday. Uh, I think I, if I remember right, I think I went over the day. Um, but all along, I remember it was that on yeah. Sunday. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I, I, I was very good-natured about it. I think you were, of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
so uh, on Sunday, though, I had a horse uh, that I really liked, uh, really the horse that I had most favored throughout the entire weekend, and the name of that horse was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, was Galliana in the finale. And so going into Sunday, I was determined to bet the horse. Um, had a you know poor start to the day. Uh, the, the pick six came up, and I knew this, this horse was uh, 30 to 1 morning line, and I knew it was going to be every bit of that. And I did something that I almost never do, which is single the big price in the pick six. Uh, subsequently got knocked out in the second leg. So then I, I, I singled her in the pick four, uh, got knocked out. Singled her in the pick three, got knocked out. Uh, loaded her up in three doubles and got knocked out. <laughs> and so was o- <laughs> so was O for the day going into the finale. Um, so Galliano was a horse that had uh, won at first asking by open lengths at uh, Delaware. Second out had been moved to the turf and had done nothing really poor showing. And was then laid off and brought up to Saratoga on July 21st, and um, I really liked the spot that they put the horse in. Uh, the layoff didn't bother me. It was getting uh, Lasix for the first time, so there were a lot of things I liked about about uh, this one. Uh, she also had been working very well, so I just felt like she was very well meant. <clears throat> so when uh, the odds came up after the, uh, the ninth race or whatever the last, next last race was, uh, she opened up at about 35 to 1. And so I went and, and hit her pretty good. I think it was something like 50 to win and 100 to play, something like that, um, and some and some exacta boxes. <clears throat> so about 10 minutes to post, she went up to 40 to one, and, uh, and then 45 to one. And I went back and, and hit her at the, at the windows again. About two minutes to post, she went up to 65 to one, and I went back to the windows. Which, but the only thing I did right all weekend was keep going back to the window <laughs> on this one. <laughs> and uh, so I hit her again. And uh, she went off at 70 to one. Uh, didn't break terribly well, uh, but was and was really being kind of hustled down the back stretch. Uh, was wide around the turn, making up ground, and uh, you know, kind of top of the stretch, mid stretch, really started uh, coming on, and um, and was uh, battling one horse, you know, all the way down the stretch to the wire, and and uh, and prevailed uh, again 70 to one. So she mm-hmm. paid. Um, <clears throat> One forty-one fifty to win, fifty-one dollars to place. Um, just a few other numbers that are kind of funny. So the the exacta paid nine eighty-two. I missed that. The trifecta was seven thousand uh, and change. The superfecta paid uh, one seventy-two, one hundred seventy-two thousand, which which is really quite a number. Yes. Uh, that pick six I paid. Uh, the pick six that I that I, I paid into and missed. Uh, no one had pick six. No one had five out of six. And. Four out of six paid uh, $799. So for an opening weekend at Saratoga, wow. really remarkable. Yeah, so so it was a big a big hit and an epic bailout, I'll add. I, it ended up being uh, way up for the weekend after, you know, being something like two for 30 going into the race. So uh, while it was, in fact, a, a big hit and it was it's an amazing feeling to see a horse at that price, you know, powering uh, through the lane, uh, you know, it was also a missed opportunity. I mean, some of those payouts are, are just remarkable, right? And um, the pick, I'm sorry, the pick four, four correct hits, $70,000. Well, so. yeah, as I said, I was there for it and I witnessed it. And uh, I don't know if you recall this, but I actually had been having a terrific day on Sunday. I probably hit about five trifectas that day. Uh, just was right, was picking right. everything and, and I had a ton of cash in my pocket. And 
<clears throat> we're awaiting the last race and you've been talking about this horse all day and I was just like tuning it out. I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. I've got, you know, this cash in my pocket. So in that funny way that horse players have, <laughs> the, the reason why I like your story so much is that funny way that horse players have, I was walking out with a bundle of cash in my pocket and I was pissed off that I had not played Galeana in the last race. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know why you. I was happy you bailed out. 20, but... <laughs> over twenty-one, right? So. <laughs> oh, that's great stuff. Hey, Matt, listen, thanks very much. That's a great story. We really appreciate it. And, and as I said to our listeners, I hope that you'll, you know, contact us on social media. Tell us about your big score as well. Uh, so, Matt, listen, thanks very much. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right, so now we are going to turn to our closing segment with a guest handicapper. I think we're going to call our segment this week the All in the Family Guest Handicapper segment as veteran handicapping contest participant Jamie Michelson. Uh, Jamie, you are one of three quality handicappers in your immediate family, correct? Uh, that's correct. So my, my father is a qualified for NHC again. My wife's joining me playing contests and regularly doing well on horse tourneys and Oh, and I'm finishing third in the trifecta. <laughs> well, I think it was Socrates who said the family that handicaps together stays together, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> All right. So, Jamie, what race did you pick out for us? Why don't you uh, tell us the race you picked out, uh, take a look at the field, and let us know what you think. I have picked out, I've looked at the three graded stakes at Woodbine on Saturday, October 13th. Okay. which also happens to be my wedding anniversary, so we'll continue to talk about keeping it in the family. Happy the, the Thank you. The the ninth and the 10th are really competitive races, some great horses coming in from foreign races, and Chad Brown probably having five horses across the two races. So we'll, we'll pass those and look at the seventh race, the Nearctic, the six-furlong turf sprint, which I think could just be one of those super exciting blanket finish kind of races. Love those turf sprints, Jamie, like we talked about. I love those. So, yeah, let them walk us through it. That sounds great. Yeah, I mean, and, and sometimes you have races where you try to serve. I mean, when I do best handicapping, it's where you kind of can envision how a race might be run or what might be happening, you know, speed favoring, closing, trips, that kind of thing. And, and I, you know, there's, there's a lot of six furlongs. They're going. There's a horse, Yorkton, in here who won a really nice race at Woodbine on their synthetic surface, now going on the turf, who I think is probably going to try to lead and a whole bunch of the horses running running with him. And so my kind of value horse of the day at those Woodbine races is the number 10 horse, Sweet Little Man, who runs consistently but kind of tends to be a bit of a sucker, you know, finishing second and third and not just quite getting there. It, it's at all kinds of different distances, but I just think the horse is drawn outside and they're going to be flying and maybe he just goes past them all at a nice solid price. So he's going to be kind of my eight year old who gets there at the wire as a win place bet and, and an exactor with the three Yorkton at the uh, seventh at Woodbine on Saturday. Well, I think you raise a good point, Jamie, about turf sprints, and I, I find this to be the profile for a lot of them in that um, they tend to be uh, very pace-filled affairs, right? Everyone wants to get to the lead uh, fairly often. I mean, sometimes you do get lone speed in those, but I find fairly often in these there's a lot of speed in there. And um, I, my, I, I actually want to run this by you. My own theory about turf sprints is that five furlongs favors the speed, 
But when you get to five and a half or six, if there's a speed duel, it, it's tough for the speed to hold up at five and a half and six. And, of course, this one clocks in at six furlongs, right? So, um, I, I agree, yep. And, and I think I, I'm kind of going on a horse here that's that horse that's fallen just short at like seven and six and a half. So people, how can he get it done at six? I just, I mean, he, 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 he did back in June and clearly uh, likes that course. And I mean, it's, you know, when it would buy him, it just, there'll be five, six horses in a line across the track coming down that stretch. Yeah, yeah. You can, you can win with a trip up the rail or you could go wide and, you know, it, what, the other thing that's interesting about Woodbine Racing, too, is that uh, it, it kind of reminds me of California in that they, they'll go back and forth from well, dirt slash synthetic, uh, synthetic slash dirt to turf, back and forth. And at Belmont, the New York circuit, I don't really see that happening as much. But in Woodbine and in California, that seems to happen a lot more often. So your other sele- yeah. selection there, Yorkton, you know, I mean, shouldn't have any problem going from synthetic to turf. They do it all the time. Right, right. And and then if the weather's bad, they have they, they still race and yeah no this this is there's uh I think I think weather at Woodbine's going to be fine I mean I don't know if you know some of these European horses that might be wanting soft turf aren't probably going to get it uh, but this this race could be bang up oh that sounds great well we'll be looking at it Jamie and we'll be watching the results uh, you know. Uh, you are on the hot seat a little bit, as I think I mentioned to you earlier in the week, because our guest handicappers so far are two for two. So we're counting on oh you. Oh, boy. Hey, keep this streak Thanks up, for... all right? <laughs> you didn't tell me that one. And in, in I will say, in the Canadian that in, International, the number two horse, who I think is the favorite, Thundering Blue, mm-hmm. the, horse, the horse comes in from a prep race in Sweden. I've, I've never a horse off of a prep race in Sweden before, so I'm just going to be watching that horse pretty closely in that race, because that's kind of neat. That, that is pretty interesting. And I'm just looking, actually, it pulled up, uh, and so is a Welcome to America gift they yelled at him when he came over here, too. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, lovely, yeah. Must have been the Swedish chef who cut him up, I guess. You know, the old There's an old Muppets reference there for you. <laughs> well... Listen, Jamie, this has been great. I uh, really appreciate it. We know, uh, you told me, uh, I think you're going to have a great weekend no matter what because you are going to go see the Eagles and Elton John in cards. Is that correct? Yeah, we're trading some live racing for live music. Going to see a couple of, couple of shows here, big shows here in Detroit. That sounds like a great time. Uh, Jamie, listen, thanks so much for your time. We'll check in next week and, and see how you did. Uh, but look, we you know when you play these shots, and I like to play them too, you know, uh, you're always at the mercy of, you know, you know, what might happen. And it's, it's, it's tough being a public handicapper, right? Or being, being out there in public, especially yep. when you're taking shots because people will say, oh, you didn't, you know. And then, and then, of course, you can't say, well, you know, the pace wasn't the way I expected it to be, blah, blah. No one wants to hear that, right? But uh, I appreciate you taking a shot at it. That's great. That's fantastic. Thanks for giving me the shot. I'll talk to you next week. All right, Jamie. As always, to all you, the listeners out there, thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll be talking with Bill Walsh, former director of the Department of Racing for the state of Arizona. We'll be talking about fun issues like medication, the role of the stewards in adjudicating racing results, and of course, anyone who bet at Saratoga this past summer will have a lot to say about uh, the stewards and would like to learn about how do these guys adjudicate results. And Bill is also going to offer his opinion for us on who the best Buffalo Bills running back is that he ever saw. 
Join us again next week, and in the meantime, may the horse be with you.